American classrooms will look slightly different during the 2020-2021 academic school year as we face an ongoing pandemic, social injustice, and racial inequality. Many black and brown people are participating in a social experiment. Class is in session, and our teacher is a prolific writer and poet, James Baldwin. Also, we'll hear voices discussing education in the time of coronavirus. I'm Valerie Johnson, and this is a special edition of Interludes. Interludes, a pure lighthouse production, brought to you by A1 Pest Masters. For all your exterminating and pest control needs, call A1 Pest Masters. And now, all the way live from the south side of Chicago, give it up for your host, Valerie Johnson. education is precisely this, that as one begins to become conscious, one begins to examine the society in which he is being educated. At his most prolific state, the writer James Baldwin questioned whether this destination would be a point of calmness or a call to action. Baldwin's ideas continue to spark thought even today. What is the state of our society? A Minneapolis police officer kneels on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds until life is choked out of him like a noose tightening around his neck. The world joins in protests and that officer gets arrested. Sheriffs go to the wrong house on a search warrant in Kentucky and kill a woman sleeping in her bed. Athletes and entertainers demand that others say her name. Rihanna Taylor, nothing happens. Still, a father is shot seven times in his back by Kenosha police and in front of his children. He is paralyzed. Police still handcuff him to a hospital bed. Is our country trying to teach us something? Perhaps a lesson about how they value us or whether or not our lives matter? The paradox of education is precisely this. That as one begins to become conscious, one begins to examine the society in which he is being educated. Some parents may have viewed education in that limited way for years, for decades, but no longer. After nearly 190,000 American deaths from the novel coronavirus that our president predicted would just go away, assumptions have proven themselves to be as false as a crooked lace front. In the language of 2020, American families and parents have had to pivot. More terms have come into our vernacular over the months. Social distancing, distance learning, and again, pivot. As in do something now that you couldn't have imagined you would have done only nine months ago. Sadly, some of us as adults refuse to follow simple directions that would help end the pandemic. You know, like wear a face mask, wash our hands, 
Stay away from large groups until it's safe. All three instructions sound like great factors to consider when it comes to reopening America's elementary and secondary schools, colleges, and universities. But you might not have known it based on current events. To be in a classroom or to be in the living room has become the question of how to safely educate a student. And the consequences of how one answers that question have become Shakespearean. But how would Shakespeare even put these two plot points together? Systematic racism and a viral pandemic. In the wake of deciding how to and where to open schools for the 2020-2021 academic year in New York, in Chicago, and in cities and towns all across America, there is no one answer. But there are and have always been certain societal expectations of students depending less on their content of character than their color of skin. The paradox of education is precisely this, that as one begins to become conscious, one begins to examine the society in which he is being educated. Would it be so strange to hear the words Black Lives Matter if more of us grew up educated in the fact that in my city, Chicago, was founded by a black man, John Baptiste Point du Sable? His name graces a museum of African-American history right here in Chicago. It's not African-American, it's American history. And that continues to be set by an African-American lesbian mayor. Our nation's capital, the place where we send politicians and protesters, was designed by a surveyor, a black man named Benjamin Banneker, educated in a one-room Quaker schoolhouse. According to the official White House website, beginning quote, in many ways, his story is a historical anomaly. He assisted with the initial survey of Washington, D.C., published abolitionist materials south of the Mason-Dixie line, and engaged with some of the country's founders in a way no black man had before. However, Banneker's life also reflected the defining paradox of the early United States, a land of freedom and opportunity with insurmountable racial qualifiers, which the nation's capital would come to embody. It would take the power of a man named Clinton, uh, George, not Bill, to claim DC as Chocolate City, which would explain why the current president is bunkered down behind the gated White House, a real life paradox. In Baldwin's famous essay, Letter to My Nephew, the writer seems to answer his own question about the paradox of education, beginning quote, you were born into a society which spelled out with brutal clarity and in as many ways as possible that you were a worthless human being. You were not expected to aspire to excellence. You were expected to make peace with mediocrity. If you know your history, you know that mediocrity was a direct opposite of James Baldwin. Though he died in 1987, Baldwin's voice has strangely become pathetic in 2020. James was a contemporary Jeremiah, a voice in the American wilderness of the early civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s. Marches, protests, and yes, riots. 
Baldwin recalled the biblical judgment of water dispatched through a great flood and the warning sent to humanity to live together as set to music. God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire the next time. The burning cars we see on our screens are the prophecy come to be. The fires of the 1960s and the 1970s that once lit up Harlem, Watts, and Detroit have rained this year in Minneapolis, in Portland, and Kenosha, Wisconsin. Rather than water, it is a baptism by fire to burn away our nation's original sin. The Civil War, Gettysburg, the women's suffrage movement, Seneca Falls, the civil rights movement, Selma, the gay rights movement, Stonewall, and that's just America. Would public protests seem less fatalistic and more meaningful if more of us knew that America wasn't the only country that successfully threw off her colonizers? Well, travel with me south of Florida. The proud nation of Haiti rose up just as America did to the English. The Haitians fought for and won their freedom from France in 1804. That was history, the kind you learned about in school, depending on your school, of course. Even that raises a question to behold. For African-American Roman Catholics in Chicago, the triumph of the Haitian Revolution was taught in school. The accomplishment of DuSable, who was Haitian Catholic, was taught in class. What is the point of school? Is it education or socialization? Now those who answer socialization, they would place kindergartners at desks dressed up like jeeps and bookend by permanent protective plexiglass five days a week in the midst of a pandemic. These government officials hope that students of all ages will keep their hands to themselves and do some things some adults refuse to do, keep their mask on their faces. Then there are those who believe the point of school is education. If the purpose is to educate, then that is not restricted to a little red schoolhouse, parking lot portables, or those ancient structures absent of air conditioning. It can be Zoom classes and TED Talks, Khan Academy exercises assigned through Google Classrooms. It can be virtual museum tours and plays uploaded on YouTube and socially distanced nature walks actually in nature. If school is for education, then it is a publicly and privately offered potential disruptor, a paradox. This is history, the kind you learn outside of school, depending on your ethnic, racial, or economic background, of course. The paradox of education is precisely this, that as one begins to become conscious, one begins to examine the society in which he is being educated. It could be said that 2020 is the year that James Baldwin's words have never been so relevant as they are today. From the 2020 best-selling book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own, by Professor Eddie Gaud Jr. to the first episode of HBO's science fiction pulp series, Lovecraft Country, the voice of Baldwin speaks to us. In Lovecraft Country, 
Baldwin makes the case that black humanity matters, sampling the audio of the author's historic 1965 debate with conservative writer and segregationist William F. Buckley at Cambridge University's Union Hall. In this debate, Baldwin says, it's come as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover that the flag to which you have pledged allegiance along with everybody else has not pledged allegiance to you. When you know James Baldwin, it doesn't surprise you when a quarterback takes a knee during the national anthem over police brutality or when players in every major professional sports league boycott their own games after a man is shot seven times in his back. These responses make sense when you know your history. It helps to know Baldwin. This is education, not socialization. But is James Baldwin still being taught in high school or even college? Baldwin wrote Notes of a Native Son, Giovanni's Room, Go Tell It on the Mountain, The Fire Next Time, and you guys should recognize this title, If Beale Street Could Talk, the basis of an Oscar-winning 2018 movie. Because of James Baldwin, there's a Toni Morrison. Because of James Baldwin, there's a Tanahashi Coates. Because of Baldwin, there can be future generations of writers, inventors, scientists, architects, entrepreneurs, and citizens taught by educators like Dr. Denise Spells, an award-winning principal of St. Etherita Catholic School on Chicago's far south side. And educator and author Gina Paul, a special education teacher in New York City's massive public school system. Coming up next, we will hear from Chicago Catholic School principal, Dr. Denise Spells, Archdiocese of Chicago's Chief Strategic Officer, Cliff Barber, and Gina Paul, a New York public school teacher and author of the children's book, I Am Not Being Lazy, I Just Don't Understand. I'm Valerie Johnson, and this is Interludes. Interludes, a pure lighthouse production, brought to you by A1 Pestmasters. For all your exterminating and pest control needs, call A1 Pestmasters. from award-winning principal Dr. Denise Spells from St. Etheretha School on how different things will be due to the coronavirus. Well, for this, the question is specifically for Principal Spells. How would you describe your first day of school this year, the ideal? It's going to okay, be different. So for the past few years, my ideal first day of school was for everyone, students and parents, to be blocked the street. We gather in the middle of the street in front of school. I make announcements, introduce new faculty, have all the new parents to step in the middle, all the new children to step in the middle, and we give them a big round of applause. Then we have prayers. After prayers, we sing. We have drum, a little drum line that plays the drums. 
We have a red carpet and African cloth draped over our doors. And so I tell the parents, your child is now getting ready to enter the village of St. Ethelreda School where we all work together. And so that's our ideal school. Last year, we all came out as in capes and masks as superheroes. And we did a little dance with the drummers for the children and got them all excited about coming to school and so we could wipe away tears and blew bubbles and threw confetti. This year, I'm not going to have any of that. <laughs> I'm going to do it by Zoom, though. I'm still going to have okay. the little drummers, and we're going to do it by Zoom for every class, and then we'll all meet, we'll say our prayers together as we usually do. All right, how do you feel about the decision of opting for in-class instruction over a hybrid model of teaching or 100% uh, Zoom or remote learning? Like, how do you feel in, in, about the decision in regards to that? When the decision was first made and announced on June 17th, I was kind of knocked off my feet because we had just closed school on June 15th. And I said, what? How can we be reopening and thinking about this when all of this is going on right now? And so as time went on, we met, the Archdiocese had its Zoom meetings, but I was very, very, and I'm still very leery about full in-person right now because I, I'm just worried about that. We can't control the virus. And I, I, I know you can have plans. The building could look fine. It could be sterilized and everything, but there's nothing in the building. People bring it in. And you don't know who's asymptomatic and who isn't. And I would hate to be in the classroom and a school has a, a room has to close down for two weeks. Then they come back and say the next week there's somebody else in the room and they have to close down again. That's, that's not good. That's not good for the mental and emotional stability of either the students, the parents, or the teacher. Brooklyn-based special education teacher, Gina Paul, author of I'm Not Being Lazy, I Just Don't Understand, speaks on the challenges of coordinating active children who are happy to return, yet need to remember the social distancing requirements. Well, you know, earlier this year, our, our, our world changed in March. And yes. many of us that worked, taught, whatever job we were doing, if we were doing it in person, we were, we were sent home. We were not going to be uh, now in the 2020-21, I think that's how you say it, school year. Mm -hmm. I believe Mayor D Bill de Blasio has opted for the New York public city schools to meet in person. What are the challenges, challenges that you expect to face in the school district that has opted for in-person learning during COVID-19? Well, for our school, because our children have disabilities, therefore, especially mm -hmm. for our District 75 students. I mean, mm -hmm. for the general um, um, population, it's already an issue. But for our special needs children, it's even more of an issue because a lot of our children are very fragile. A lot of them have mm -hmm. um, underlying health issues. Um, and I think um, some of the parents definitely are opting to keep their children home. But those mm -hmm. who don't have underlying health issues, we, we, are coming, we, we are coming to terms with some of the issues that we might be dealing with come, come next month, in just a couple of weeks, really. Right. Um, a lot of our students, um, again, they're in diapers. We have to change them. You can't change social, by social distancing. You have to get up close and, pers and personal to change a child. A lot of our kids cannot keep um, their masks on because of sensory issue. So how do you constantly, you know, if my hand is touching left and right and doing this, and then my hand trying to put masks over, that might be more of an issue 
than just a child not even keeping the mask on. And then you also have students who are runners. So when you're walking down the hallway, I have to hold on to your wrist because I don't want you running off and I gotta chase you down. And I have other students that I have to be concerned about. So it's a lot of um, other things that comes along with it. My children put everything in their mouths. It goes, they will find it because although they are, because um, I teach kindergarten and first grade, Okay. Um, they're, they're, um, they're at still at about nine to 18 months level. So you know how, like you have that toddler who's always putting things in their mouth. That's the level right. where they're at. So a lot of our kids okay. are always putting things in their mouths. So, and then a lot of them lick their fingers, suck their thumbs, their hands are in their mouth. It's going to be very challenging to, you know, I cannot tell you even before that my, um, assistant and I will always wash their hands. We have a sink and thing we have a sink in our classroom. We always wash. I cannot, my hands were so cracked. My hands were so pretty much ripped open from washing mm-hmm. hands like every 10 to 15 minutes. And that was, we didn't even have a, a, a coronavirus to worry about. But now we have a coronavirus. I think we might just, just stand next to the sink and just, just make the line. Okay, now you go back in the back of the line. Let's wash your hands. Go back to the line. <laughs> we just gotta make a line just washing hands because I know it's going to be a problem. Our children don't understand social distancing they're used mm-hmm. to hugging us they're used to yes. us hugging them high-fiving mm-hmm. and you know and pound you know and we're always doing now you're going to tell them nope you know i can't hug you nope you know i can't you know i can't hold nope like they don't understand that and it's mm-hmm. going to be very difficult for them emotionally um to not being able to socialize in that way with us so I, I just don't know, like come September, what to expect, especially with the flu season coming in and um, October and how between the coronavirus and the flu season, how that's going to work. Dr. Spells and Archdiocese of Chicago Chief Strategy Officer Cliff Barber both discussed the historic role of Catholic schools in Chicago. I think in the African-American community, it gives parents a sense of self-worth that no matter what school and what education they had, they want something more for their children. If it means that I have to work a second job, I have to work overtime, I have to, you know, put the needs of education before anything else so that my children will have a better education. Because when growing up, if you went to Catholic school, public schools, all children always had to go, oh, you think you're better than everybody else because you go to a Catholic school and you wear a uniform and things like that. And I, and I, I kind of I think that that's what it is because most African American people were these days, I think, were cradle Catholics, and not too many people becoming Catholic now. And so, if you were a cradle Catholic like me, you still have that value and that you know instill that within your own children. So, my husband and I made a point. He went to public school in East St. Louis, but he knew I was teaching in Catholic school and, I don't, and he said, no, Chicago public schools are bad. I said, not as bad as East St. Louis schools. <laughs> but, but we made the decision to just, uh, to just do this, you know, because I've watched, I came from a family, I come from a family of seven, six boys and I'm the only girl. And I watched how my parents worked to mm-hmm. put us through Catholic school. And then I watched how we worked at school doing things too for your tuition. So I think it's that and still it's that feeling that you're connected to God. Because I started off with CPS, you know, it was money. I couldn't get with CPS because I couldn't pray. And I kept thinking, we're supposed to be praying every day. 
couldn't write Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, JMJ on the top of that paper. And, you know, it was just something missing that had been instilled in me. And I worked with nuns at both of the schools I worked with. And luckily, I was able to find nuns who work here now. So I've gone full circle with the nuns. And um, I still think it's that feeling of education is more important than anything else. And I want my children to be have that advantage over other people. Because they'll even go to public school, and if they go to the nearby public schools, they'll come back. And it, the children will come back and say, I already knew that work. It was easy. I'm like, mm, it was easy, huh? Okay, so that means we're really teaching you. And then the parents. And then they love that fact that they are in a school where it's family. They know the teachers. They know the other students. They know they meet students' parents. They know they can call on you with anything. They know that you'll be the magic fixer of everything if you can, or a resource person. And I think they like that close-knit feeling as well. God first, though. They, they love the fact that we pray every day. Mm -hmm. They know that. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Mr. Barber, would you like to answer that as well? Yeah, I think I agree with everything uh, Dr. Spell said. Uh, you know, my, my own family lineage, I think many of us can trace our lineage to other parts of the country. My uh, family from both sides came from the South. Uh, New Orleans is the Catholic part, and um, I come from a mixed-faith family. So my, my mother is Baptist, and my father is Catholic. When they got married, and she had to give in, and, and we had, she had to uh, acquiesce to us being uh, raised Catholic. But she, she actually made us go to both. Uh, but, uh, so I, on Sundays, I felt hard done by because I had to go to the early morning to the Catholic church. It was an hour, but then the Baptist was all day long. So I, that's kind of how I knew with the Catholic because I was like, you know what? It's just easier to go for an hour. <laughs> but, you know, going back to the, the migration of my family from the south up here, they came with certain values. My, my grandfather came here with nothing, uh, you know, not, not really a penny to, to call to his name. Uh, but he kind of worked his way and he valued uh, just hard work and education and family. That was the values that he had. And so I think, you know, when he got here, there was, you know, at, the Catholic education was the root. Uh, if you could get your kids into that, it was where you could get the spiritual education and the intellectual education. And there weren't a lot of other options. So you, he just worked as hard as he could as on both sides to get the kids into a Catholic school where they could get that. Now, from the point of view, me being Catholic, there was an evangelizing aspect to it. Thinking about what I'm doing with the Renew My Church, which is all about how we better evangelize or more effectively evangelize the faith, there really is no more effective way to do it than with a captive audience of kids in a school and the work that Dr. Spells is doing where, you know, there's a reliance on God, uh, but also to our God-given gifts of intellect. I believe the best way to close our special interludes episode is to hear from the writer himself, James Baldwin. Look, the truth is it's very hard to talk about education in this country without talking about the whole society in which it, in which it mainly fails to occur. Let's face it, um, black people in this country have a terrible time just getting through 24 hours a day. Um, <laughs> It's absolutely true, you know, and education, in a, it's hard to talk about education in a country in which illiteracy is, is, is um, illiteracy is adored. And I am saying that black people edu very largely educate themselves. What, one do, what, what you have to do is pick up the tools and with your own intention, you know, that's the trick.
We would like to thank Dr. Denise Spells of St. Etherita Catholic School, the Archdiocese of Chicago's Chief Strategic Officer, Cliff Barber, and Gina Paul, Brooklyn-based special education teacher and the author of the children's book, I Am Not Being Lazy, I Just Don't Understand, for joining us on today's show. For more information about the award-winning programs at St. Etherita School and Dr. Denise Spells, please visit stetherita.org. The children's book, I Am Not Being Lazy, I Just Don't Understand, is available in hardcover and Kindle on Amazon.com. Next time on Interludes. To be an entrepreneur, you've got to just go for it. And I know that sounds very cliche, but I've, I've mentored so many that have wrote these business plans that are 500 pages, 1,000 pages to never, ever start. If you don't start, I don't care how great your business plan is, because that does not mean you're going to succeed. You actually have the will. You have to have the will to do it. You have to go for it. Entrepreneur and CEO of the Chicago-based wine company, Love Corkscrew, Ms. Krishan Lampley. Interludes, written and produced by Michael Womble and Valerie Johnson. Interludes theme song, written and produced by Kendall Nesbitt. Interludes, a pure lighthouse production. Brought to you by A1 Pestmasters. For all your exterminating and pest control needs, call A1 Pestmasters at area code 773-365-9962 or visit their website at a1pestmasters.com. Interludes.